Hello, and welcome to the Narrative Matters podcast, where we hear personal stories about experiences with the healthcare system and the people in it that highlight the important policy issues of today. If you've listened to our past Narrative Matters recording, this is going to sound a little bit different. As we join our suite of new podcasts at Health Affairs, including a health policy and health affairs this week, we're adding some oomph to our traditional recordings. Each month's episode will now feature a short interview with the author before the recording. Today, I'm talking to Shaibu Ali, a fourth-year medical student at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth College, and the author of this month's Narrative Matters essay called COVID-19 Through the Eyes of a Black Medical Student. In the essay, Shaibu writes about growing up in public housing in Harlem in New York City, and how his upbringing reflects some of the realities that predispose black and brown bodies in this country to disproportionate levels of underlying conditions such as obesity and asthma that make communities of color uniquely susceptible to the worst of disease progression. Shaibu, we know that the COVID-19 pandemic has had a disproportionate impact on black Americans. In this essay, you talk about the importance of focusing not just on the statistics about racial health disparities, but on the stories behind the statistics. What drove you to write this piece? Jessica, um, thank you so much for that um, kind introduction. So this piece was inspired by uh, when I returned home from school in the midst of the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Uh, I got a chance to go back to my childhood home and where uh, my family still lives. And in that time, uh, I, I stayed in my childhood room that I grew up in uh, with my little brother. We actually shared a bunk bed for a few weeks. And through my coming and going, uh, one thing that I consistently noted was that um, there were these new policies that were being rolled out, um, um, specifically social distancing, um, specifically uh we were being told to use uh, hand sanitizer. Um, and I I realized that in my building, for those who uh, came and went, that was particularly challenging. Um, we, only, we always only had one elevator that was working. Um, and to get up to 21 floors, uh, taking the stairs was almost impossible. And so we always had more than two or three people in the elevator. We always had doors in the front of the building that were seemed to be jammed and uh, needed to be uh, jimmied open. And, you know, a lot of people were touching uh, surfaces that may have not been clean for days. Uh, I never noticed any hand sanitizer dispensers in the hallways. Uh, these were just a few of the things. In addition, as people began to get ill, um, I had family members who were, who had many, who had multiple family um, families living in the home, whether someone had recently lost a job or whether uh, someone was just trying to get back on their feet. We had family members that, you know, were, were sharing a household. And it immediately occurred to me that in, if one of them got sick, there was no way that the entire household wouldn't get sick. And I began to realize that while this COVID-19 pandemic did affect the entire country, there were going to be people, uh, specifically those in my community, that were going to be impacted very, very direly. 
Yeah, and, and watching that devastating impact in New York City, your your home and in communities of color, um, that must have been very difficult to watch unfold. I, I'm wondering how the devastation, how that trauma has affected you, how it's affecting cities and communities as a whole. You know, one thing that I think that this has done is that it has brought to the forefront the idea of um, these social determinants of health that we all talk about. Um, it's while while it was very sad to see um, older adults in my building uh, succumb to uh, to this disease, and it was um, extremely uh, devastating to see people um, out of work and unable to um, afford their rent. It immediately occurred to me and many others that this problem, this pandemic, while it is highlighting the issues we're facing in our community, it is not the issue in our community. The issue in our community is that there are race, there are um, structures, particularly ones that have uh, racial undergirdings uh, that have caused people in our community to to be able to be particularly susceptible to the worst of diseases like COVID. And so I think it's actually a powerful moment because um, between what has happened with the COVID pandemic and um, uh, sort of these movements, Black Lives Matter movements, um, and everything that we're seeing in, in our time, I think that it's moved young people and old people alike to, to realize that problems that we've talked about for decades still persist today. And I think what it's done is motivate, it's that it's motivated a group of young people uh, to try to come up with strategic ways and creative ways to address the problem. And I think for me, one of those ways was through telling my story. That's right. As, as we mentioned, you're a fourth year medical student and medical school has long had a reputation of not reflecting the diversity of the U.S. population. I'm wondering what your experience as a medical student has been and how you hope to see medical school's admissions and the experiences of medical students evolve in, say, the next five, ten years. Uh, that's a great question, um, Jessica. One of the things that occurred to me very early in uh, the medical in in uh, getting ready to matriculate to medical school was the fact that there weren't very many people like me on the interview trail, and I mean what I mean by that it was there were just not very many black people, uh, there were not very many Hispanic people, there there weren't very many people who were coming from um, inner cities and lower socioeconomic um, statuses, and because because of that. Um, you immediately begin to feel this imposter syndrome of, do I belong in this space? Is this space one that I will succeed in? And I think one of the things that really allowed me to uh, get over that feeling was uh, very early on in my interview, uh, one of my best friends um, today, 
Kenneth Williams, who is my uh, another classmate of mine, we met at the interview. And in the moment that we met, uh, funny story, I actually uh, <laughs> looked at him and said, uh, looked across the room and said, wow, look, there's another, uh, <laughs> there's another black guy. And in that very moment, while I was happy to see him, I realized that I immediately began to question whether only one of us would get an opportunity to be there and to be at our school. Because all I had seen up until that point was that there were very few of us at the next level. So I assumed that that was something that was just going to persist. And so uh, how could it be that in one interview uh, cohort, two black students will get in? And it wasn't until uh, we all had to share a story of sort of uh, what made us, what was our fun fact. And I mentioned, uh, you know, I worked with students and I taught them, I coached basketball and I played and I taught them um, flag football. And then when Kenneth went, when Kenny went, he said that he beat Serena Williams in a game of tennis when he was <laughs> uh, coming up playing on the junior circuit. And I immediately thought, there's no way I'm going to get a spot in this class. <laughs> and, you know, I laugh when I tell this story now, but, you know, it's actually quite sad because I think one of the reasons why that I ended up where I'm at is because I met Kenny on the interview trail. And in the moment of feeling like that space was a space that I would occupy alone or he would occupy alone, seeing that there was going to be another person who can really empathize with some of the struggles of being a minority in a majority space made me feel very comfortable to, to decide to come here to get my education. And uh, to follow up with that, I think um, going forward five to 10 years from now, what I think medical schools can do is truly show that they are committed to diversity. And, and, and there are many ways to do this. Um, I think that, you know, the story of meeting Kenny tells you how important it is to see folks like yourself um, on interview day and to see folks like yourself on events that the school holds during the interview cycle. So having these cohort recruitments where you bring in students of color on the same day and bring them into the interview process, where you intentionally create a atmosphere that is welcoming, um, specifically with the nuances of uh, what might be important to them and their from and their community. Uh, in additionally, um, scholarships. I think uh, a lot of times um, students of color, um, because of sort of systematic racism in America, uh, social economic status tracks with race and ethnicity in this country. And so a lot of students of color, and not all, but a lot, are coming from uh, families that uh, are dispro disproportionately um, facing financial strife. And when um, an admission process uh, ends and a student is holding an acceptance and then 
a week later, they get that financial aid, the financial statement that tells them the cost of attendance. I think that is the true admission. The admission happens when that cost of attendance slip comes and you realize, can I afford to go to this school? Um, will I have to have a job while I go to school because um, to be able to pay for my rent or to be able to um, purchase groceries? And when schools and start thinking about the fact that there are these disproportionate financial stressors on their students, specifically those from uh, minority backgrounds, I think they can be more proactive about offering scholarships that will meet the needs of these students in a way that will draw more students who uh, are, are, are discouraged by entering the field of medicine due to the, the high cost to enter the field. And, and I would say a final thing is schools need to show their commitment to diversity through their investments in their DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion offices. Um, if a school has uh, is committed to this work, they will have the understanding that the experts need to be in the room when you're thinking about improving your admissions processes, when you're thinking about being more inclusive. It, 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 it is almost unfair to put the onus on students of color who themselves are trying to navigate this space to solve that issue of admissions, which so many schools, or from my conversations with my peers at other institutions, are doing and are relying heavily on on and, and taxing those students. By investing in individuals who have experience and have researched and really understand that space, I think those individuals can be consultants on any um, committee that needs to be formed in order to um, increase and improve strategies for recruiting students of color. And then I guess the, the very, very last thing that I'll say and challenge us to think about is, you know, during this residency process and interviewing for residency, one thing I noticed is that um, in light of what has happened, I think um, there are, there's a, a definite there's a definite um, focus on diversity and inclusion at the residency level, which I think is amazing and fantastic. And I think there's programs that are doing a great job at it. The issue I find is that by the time residencies are recruiting medical students to, to come into their fields, whether that is general surgery or um, um, family medicine or emergency medicine or whatever field, it is already too late to, to be able to fill uh, a residency cohort with uh, a good, strong, diverse, uh, good, strong, diverse applicants. And that's because we're looking at a problem at that level that began way before that. These are problems that are at the elementary school level. These are problems that are at the middle school level. These are problems that are at the high school level at the college level, and at, at each level, there is an attrition of talented black young individuals who 
um, are not necessarily receiving the mentorship that will lead them to get to become medical students and become residents at the next level. And so I think there needs to be more of a focus on creating pipeline programs. And I think every medical school should be committed to that. How do we look into our community or neighboring communities or communities that are distant from us and find those primary schools, those secondary schools that would benefit from having us creatively think about preparing those young minds to one day sit in the classrooms that we we teach in at the medical level. So I think there's a lot of work to be done. And I think there are people who really care about this work and are committed to it. And I think, um, I, I think that um, I have hope that with, some, with my classmates, people like um, T. Ray Chu, people like Kenneth Williams, people like Amal, people like Bailey, I think we are headed in a direction where we will have um, leaders in the future in medicine that will carry the torch forward and, and will create these pipeline programs and will uh, do some of these initiatives that I think will really benefit um, medicine in general. Yes, thank you for this great conversation and for your leadership and your future leadership. And now here's Shaibu Ali reading his essay, COVID-19 Through the Eyes of a Black Medical Student. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, the burden of morbidity and mortality has weighed heavily on Black people. Even as public attention to the impact of the pandemic on Black communities has waxed and waned. In New York City, Black people were significantly more likely to be infected and die from COVID-19 compared with their white neighbors. Nowhere was this more evident than in my home community of Harlem. Central Harlem has had four times the number of cases and deaths than the Upper West Side has had. Compared with Harlem, the Upper West Side is a considerably wealthier, whiter neighborhood. Although they are separated by just a couple of blocks with no physical border between them, when walking through the neighborhoods, you can see a palpable demographic shift from one side to the other. In 1899, W.E.B. Du Bois noted famously in his book, The Philadelphia Negro, that the differences in health seen in blacks and whites is the outcome of the vastly different conditions in which black people live, with bad dwellings, poor food, and unsanitary living conditions. More than 120 years later, his words resonate as though they were written yesterday. Although COVID-19 statistics may capture data on black people, they do no justice to representing the deeper reality of black lives, an understanding of which is necessary to guide informed action. The disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on black communities implores the medical community to shift discussions from faceless statistics to concrete narratives that capture their daily reality. Reflecting on my own upbringing in the public housing developments of Harlem, I recognize that my story is central to understanding and eradicating the ongoing injustices that preserve health inequities across the country. In the heart of West Harlem, Building 200 has been my home for most of my life. The 21-story New York City Housing Authority building stands erect with a worn copper-brown brick facade universally recognizable to any New Yorker as the projects. My building is unbroken by years of infestation by drugs, roaches, rats, and police who constantly observe each of us as we came and went about our daily lives. A deliberate reminder that our freedom, or even our lives, 
could be snatched away at a moment's notice, just feet from our apartment door. Harlem has been home to some of the city's poorest and most resilient residents. Here, black culture dates back to the days of the Harlem Renaissance, where the likes of Duke Ellington, Langston Hughes, and countless others inspired a change in the narrative of the African-American from that of a rural, uneducated person to one of urban cosmopolitan sophistication, according to one scholar. Home to the Apollo Theater and Holcomb Rucker Park, the most famous playground in basketball. Harlem is a place where a common racial identity set the stage for a collective confidence and consciousness, a place that Ta-Nehisi Coates opines in his acclaimed 2015 nonfiction book, between the world and me would have been home to the 18th dynasty pharaohs if they were alive today. In more recent years, gentrification has threatened to displace longtime residents who have endured the neighborhood's worst days in exchange for new, whiter faces who are ostensibly more deserving of the markers of modern development. Whole Foods, coffee shops, and New York sports clubs. Tucked in the nook of the hood, Building 200 is a downright unlikely place to find an Ivy League medical student, but it is a place I still call home. As the COVID-19 pandemic sidelined medical students from the clinical setting, I ventured back home to Harlem to Building 200 and the hallways I walked as a child. While taking virtual classes from the kitchen table, I sat in front of the window that faces the playground and the memories came rushing back to me. I remembered gunshots ringing through the thick, humid summer air, and chills running down my 10-year-old spine, shaken as I thought about the faceless victim. The following day, my mom would say, absolutely no playing basketball outside. My reaction was always feigned bewilderment. My belly bloated with anger and resentment as I marched to my room. I never perceived this infringement on my freedom to safe play as a potential nidus for health issues later in life. I recall spirited, middle school trips to my favorite corner store. I would impatiently wait at the deli among myriad school children and a deafening cacophony of demands. My $3 allowance burned a hole in my pocket. Yo, let me get a turkey, bacon, egg, and cheese, I would order. And the Arizona, too. It was one of the few meals that my $3 could afford. I could not recognize how both this limited budget and my mom's unremitting work schedule which seldom allowed her to prepare a healthy breakfast, were major factors opposing my essential health and development. I also remember feeling liberated at PS 180 when we would finally get to go to play at recess. One day, during a game of touch football out on the faded gray asphalt of our chain-linked fence schoolyard, as Metro Transit buses stopped to pick up passengers at the corner every 10 minutes or so, I juked the would-be tackler and then sprinted to score a touchdown. Suddenly, I struggled to breathe. The diffuse wheezes emanating from my chest would later be confirmed as asthma by the school nurse. Several kids at my school also had that diagnosis. Learning of the ubiquity of asthma amongst my peers should have consoled me. Instead, I now see it as an omen of the reality of life for an inner city black kid. It did not occur to me to fear growing up so close to that bus depot, where hundreds of high emissions buses came and went daily. I never fathomed how the convenient proximity could be injurious to my health. I wasn't entirely naive. They were dangerous to my health I recognized, and with them came daily fears. Fear centered on survival from the moment I walked out of my apartment. It manifested in my conscious refusal to bear a smile for any of the bus ride to and from school. 
A smile had a high chance of being perceived as too happy, too weak, and therefore a target for bullying. And then there was my fear of being seen using food stamps at the local supermarket. My mother had recently divorced, and my mom had been laid off from work after the 9-11 attacks. She was raising three of us alone. We needed the help direly. Still, that card and its symbolic reminder of my poverty made me ashamed and caused significant anxiety. I recalled it all. The knot in my throat from seeing police officers in front of my elevator every evening. They were a constant reminder of the day I was accosted in the street by four officers who instructed me to get on the ground and show my hands. I obliged and waited patiently, calmly going through my mental don't get shot checklist until one officer broke the news to the rest that I was not the guy. I shared with the homicide suspect only a skateboard, a haircut, and black skin. In medical school, I learned that this constant state of stress causes repeated bursts of cortisol, the major stress hormone. This likely affected me biologically, promoting damage at a cellular level, commensurate with advanced aging. I know now that this is called the weathering effect. But growing up, I was wholly unaware of that. As I reflect on how normal I thought my childhood was, I realize how little I expected from the world around me. My upbringing reflects some of the realities that predispose black and brown bodies in this country to disproportionate levels of obesity, hypertension, diabetes, and asthma. These oft-referenced underlying conditions are exploited by the current COVID-19 pandemic and make communities of color uniquely susceptible to the worst of disease progression. As I look out the kitchen window of my childhood home now, I see a few young kids running around the playground to which my mother once denied me access. I can't help but think about their innocence and their ignorance. Their blindness reminds me of my own at their age. They cannot see what living in this community is doing to them or what it has already done to their families and friends. They cannot see what it has done to me. These kids deserve solutions that allow them to grow up without the burdens of underlying conditions that make them more susceptible to the next pandemic. We have no right to sit silently by while the inevitable seeds are sown for the harvest of disaster to our children, black and white. Du Bois wrote, these kids deserve a medical community that is well informed about the entrenched structures that force them to seek medical attention. One that does not see blackness as the underlying ideology and is able to probe further to question the environments that their patients live, play, and work in. During my three years of medical education, I have seen timely opportunities for impactful discourse and change that could address the needs of communities susceptible to the worst of diseases such as COVID-19. Medical schools must work to produce more conscientious curricula that can produce more thoughtful doctors. At this time, schools have fallen short in the classroom. Discussions about race are often limited to its association as a risk factor and rarely approach the topic of structural racism. As a result, we, medical educators, miss out on opportunities to encourage medical students to think about how they might, as future physicians, mitigate the impact of structural inequities on the health of their patients. In addition, the organization of this information can be improved and prioritized within the curriculum by weaving it more seamlessly throughout the program, as opposed to cramming many of these critical lessons in at the end of the term, where it feels like just checking a box. Beyond new curricula, 
Inclusive admission processes and supportive financial aid are needed to make the field of medicine more accessible and secure a pipeline of providers from these communities. To ensure that we have a safe and inclusive learning and working environments, onboarding and training practices in hospital employment should be restructured to blunt the impact of implicit bias on patients and professional colleagues alike. In addition, those of us in medicine must use our platform to push for policy changes that create more equitable primary and secondary education systems. Secure access to safer drinking water, food and play and minimize environmental pollution and ensure better employment opportunities for black people. Ultimately, by doing our part, the medical community can improve society in a way that benefits all marginalized groups. Ultimately, by doing our part, the medical community can improve society in a way that benefits all marginalized groups. Society fails time and time again to address issues of race. We, as a medical community, should do better. Let's push beyond the theoretical and convenient use of buzzwords like social determinants of health and disparities that engender empty empathy and move toward the uncomfortable truths of racism and structural inequity. These truths are manifest not in sterile statistics, but in complex realities shaped by present and historical forces in addition to medical and social sciences. The higher levels of disease and death in Black communities are not aberrations of the coronavirus, but realities that go back several generations. There must be wholesale recognition that the COVID-19 pandemic did not merely reveal racial disparities and disease outcomes, but also revealed the entrenched structural racism and inequities in place across U.S. society. Discriminatory housing and financial practices created segregated communities with concentrated vulnerabilities. The environmental exposures allowed in vulnerable communities but restricted in wealthier white communities create high rates of asthma. Food deserts fuel obesity and diabetes. Persistent racism and microaggressions contribute directly to higher rates of hypertension and heart disease. Physicians lacking the knowledge and the tools to address structural racism can exacerbate disproportionate levels of death and suffering. A perhaps well-meaning physician may assume that a patient's non-adherence to clinical recommendations is simply due to non-compliance instead of limited resources or even medical mistrust. Through the process of better understanding the barriers faced by these patients, the medical community may carry a deeper empathy and more thoughtfully consider how to help patients have more successful treatment plans. Critical appraisal of our clinical practices will allow the medical community to mitigate the health disparities in disenfranchised communities that have been known for more than a century. Quoting Du Bois again, Comrade, you and I can never be satisfied with sitting down before a great human problem and saying nothing can be done. We must do something. That is the reason we are here on earth. So let not only statistics, but also narrative truths be part of a medical education and practice as they serve as powerful tools in grounding the medical community and inspiring meaningful actions to address inequity at its source. Given the deeply and historically interwoven threads of injustice, health justice will be an iterative process requiring, among other things, anti-racist medical education and practice. Within the medical community, that includes advocating for policy changes and then consistently leveraging and prioritizing voices from the vulnerable communities that these policies will invariably affect. Such context is essential to the conversation, as it is obvious that despite the abundance of content experts, the health gaps that Du Bois spoke of 120 years ago 
have not been closed. Beyond the medical community, every person has a role to play. And that begins with leveraging local and state representatives, voting in national elections, and demanding that leaders prioritize health equity in their day one agendas. Let's all inspire the change we want to see in our society. No more slow walking. We must pick up the pace. The time to do something is now.